In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Imagine, if you will, a perfect world, a utopia that you might desire to live in above all others. Now, of course, we all know that utopias are mere fantasies, mere creations of the mind. While you and I may share similar characteristics about what our created world or utopias might be, there would undoubtedly be some rather striking differences. So much so that what my utopia might be actually becomes a dystopia, an undesirable place for you to live. Now, at first glance, our utopias might include the rather benign trappings of what we would consider an idyllic setting. For me, it would be a little English village with a village green where I could go and watch the cricket being played, with an ancient parish church just around the corner, with some nice historical cottages and some hills and dales to look out upon with sheep grazing peacefully in the distance. And of course, my house, my particular house, would have a fairly large library that, o- that overlooked all of this so that I never, ever, ever had to leave my house unless I just really, really wanted to. For some of you, it might be a cabin in Colorado, an oasis in a desert, a deserted island, or perhaps even a large metropolitan city. And the first one that came to mind for me was Fort Worth because the city center is such that anything you want to do is just a five to ten minute walk away. But the other common denominators in utopian worlds are not just their surroundings, but also, and I would say most importantly, the laws and the governments, the social conditions of your neighbors in relationship to yourself and the prescribing of what makes that place, that world, so peaceful and harmonious, it makes it desirable to live in. In my world, all businesses would be closed on Sundays. Now in your world, it might be 2 p.m., just in case you realize that you have forgotten your milk. A dystopian world, in my mind, would be a world where every crime, no matter how minor or how significant, is punished harshly and severely. And my utopian vision of not so much a lax, but perhaps a more lenient system in your world might not quite be enough. The prophet Isaiah in today's lesson paints a picture, not so much of a utopia but rather what it will look like once the Messiah, the anointed of God, comes and begins to reign. But in order for us to understand what this all means, we must recall where we find ourselves in the story. Isaiah has been warning of an impending exile. Israel, the nation to the north, has fallen, and Judah in the south is being besieged. The hope of the people is fading, and people are recalling some of the prophecies and the psalms that speak about how the throne of David will endure forever. And the question in their mind is, how can this be if the house of David is obliterated from the earth? Into this situation, Isaiah reminds the people that just like a tree that has been cut off, left as a stump sticking out of the ground, a fresh shoot, a sign of growth and life 
will spring forth. The stump of Jesse is an indicator that the Davidic line will remain and that the Messiah will come from that line. How do we know this? Because Jesse, the name of this stump, is the father of King David. He's the ancestor of the king. And if this stump of Jesse will produce a shoot, then Judah and Israel can look forward to the new Messiah who is coming, the next son of David, the next king in this Davidic line. And upon that Messiah will the Spirit of the Lord rest. Now, one of the things that we must remember about kings in the ancient world is that many times they also sat in judgment. Unlike our own Republican form of democracy that divides the powers between three equal branches of government, a king was also the judge. Therefore, part of the role of the king was to not only uphold the law, but was also to set things right, to administer justice, and to administer that justice fairly. It was understood that part of rendering justice was to put things right, to set things back into their proper order, to restore society to a near-perfect state as it could be placed in. And this is where our psalm for today, Psalm 72, that great messianic psalm, details not only the hope of what the king will do, but provides a quasi-job description of what a proper king doing a proper job would look like. Defend the needy, rescue the poor, crush the oppressor. Ruling the people righteously meant not taking bribes and payments for services rendered, but when the wrong was done to the poor, that they would receive equal justice because they probably didn't have enough to bribe you with. And as an aside, let me remind you that that doesn't mean that you side automatically with the poor either because that's not justice. As Leviticus 19.15 reminds us, it says, Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great. But judge your neighbor fairly. This same psalm, Psalm 72, we will visit again on the Feast of the Epiphany with some of the middle verses which are not part of today's readings included. And they will remind us that when this king, when this Messiah does all these things, if he has pity on the lowly and redeems people from violence and oppression, then all kings will bow before him, and all nations will do him homage, just like those magi that are making their way up the center aisle during this season who come from the east to bow down and worship the Christ child. When the king, the Messiah, this branch from Jesse does these things, and shows wisdom and might and knowledge and the fear of the Lord, then we will see the world begin to be set right.
And that is exactly what Jesus has done as our Messiah. The restoration of this world, the coming of the new creation on Easter Day, while it has already occurred through the death and resurrection of Jesus, has also not yet been fully realized. We live in this perpetual advent, spending part of our time in the already and part of the time in the not yet, waiting for something that has already happened to reach its final fulfillment. But we, as the king's subjects, as the followers of the Messiah, are to assist and aid in this recovery of the world. So that this vision, not a utopic vision, but a beatific vision, comes to bear in the here and the now. Wolves living with lambs, leopards sheeping, uh, sleeping with goats and calves, livestock sharing their fields with lions, cows and bears grazing together without fear. Our own little children playing over holes that we know are inhabited by rattlesnakes and water moccasins. All these images are diametrically opposed to each other when we live in a world corrupted by sin. But once the world is put right, these opposed groups will begin to live in a perfect world, a paradise a restoral of the Garden of Eden. As Christians, this is the world that we should be helping our blessed Lord usher into existence. We, fellow heirs of God, are also called to bring justice and equity and peace to this weary world. If we want to change the metaphor of lions laying down with calves or infants playing over serpent dens, then let us take these prophetic images and move them into our current world and age. If we want to see this vision, this beatific vision of the world, then Russia and Ukraine must live at peace with one another. And all Christians must work and pray for that to be so. If we want to see this world of paradise restored, then we must join daily with the psalmist who wrote, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem, and may peace be within thy walls, and quietness within thy bulwarks. And I'll just remind you as an aside, that was from our psalm from last Sunday. If we want this beatific vision to take a more firm grasp than it already has, we Christians must pray and work. Pray and work. Following the Benedictine rule of ora et labora, for justice to be met out here, where we are, but not as we wish and desire it, but as God has set it forth. And as Christ Jesus, our Lord and Judge, has commanded. This passage is one of great hope, 
great expectation. It is the image of a utopia set in motion by God our Father and fulfilled in the death and resurrection of God the Son. But we too, through the urging and convicting of God the Holy Spirit, must also work to help make it a reality. Just as water makes up seas and oceans, it fills the ocean, fills the basin, but the water also covers. It's the top layer of what you see. That is what it will look like when all of this work is accomplished. When the earth is full of the knowledge and the justice of God, not only will it be a surface deep covering, a thin layer of water on the top of the ocean, but instead it will permeate everything. Every square inch of this world will be restored, including all the creatures that dwell therein. And they will understand and know God. Like plumbing the depths of the ocean or understanding that the earth is more than the sliver that we see each day. All flesh shall see the glory of God. A vision of a perfect world restored by the Messiah is not a utopic vision. That is nothing but mere folly. Rather, it is the message of the gospel. It is the reality that we are charged to labor to bring forth. And this is why we pray, especially during this season of Advent, Maranatha, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, quickly come. And as we progress through this season, let us learn to pray these words daily. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, free us from our sins. Set this world right. Restore this earth back to the image of your creation. And give justice to all the peoples. Come, Lord Jesus, quickly come. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.